I'm kind of like the extreme guy. I'm either going to drink water or Coke. I'm not going to go for Diet Coke. What in the world is this pile of cards and how does this make any sense at all? Welcome to the 68th episode of Everyday Channel. With me tonight are my co-host Eric Lanton and as a special guest from Beijing, China, my good friend James Su. Hey guys, how's it going? Eric, what have you been up to? Hey guys, um, I have just been playing a lot of Legacy, getting ready for uh, GP Bologna coming up. I went to the Puget Sound Battleground Tournament up in Seattle last weekend um getting some losses out of my way before heading to Italy. <laughs> did, did did you use it to test for for Italy or was it more like oh I want to get some games games in? A little bit of both. It was it was uh kind of to get some paper magic under my belt um because it had been a little while since I'd played paper magic. So I wanted to get in at least one tournament before I before I head to Italy. Luckily There are some medium-sized legacy tournaments at the local shops around Italy in the week leading up to the GP, so I'll get to play some more. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of tournaments, right? I, I'm still not sure when I'm going to arrive in town, but I also want to like hit a couple of those events because those are definitely going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I noticed that you didn't mention how you actually ended up going in Seattle, so I'm definitely going to ask you, uh, what was your final record in the end? Um, two, three, <laughs> drop. So you got 50 player points? No, I didn't get anything other than a sad ride home. Uh, but uh, if I know something, then that you're probably going to do better in Bologna. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. That that was the plan, yeah. Anything else? Uh, has there been like a secret list you've been working on? Or, or is, is Legacy somewhat figured out, f at least from your perspective right now? Yeah, I've been working a little bit on Grixis Delver just because I have Grixis cards um, and I don't have rug cards, but I haven't... I haven't found a list that I think is super strong and uh, it's all right, but it's not, I'm not excited about it. And yeah, other than that, um, I haven't, I haven't been doing much brewing or anything. because I feel like, as you said, from my perspective, it feels like there isn't a whole lot of room in legacy right now. Oh, we will definitely get to speak about that later on. I have a feeling we will see you navigating your way through some, or actually casting some grizzle brands, even if it comes to that. <laughs> But uh, James, how's it going for you? It's so good to have you on the podcast. I think it's the first time that you're on Everyday Channel tonight or that, ever. <laughs> that's right. And first of all, I just want to say I'm super excited to be here. It's really hard to keep up with you guys because you guys are so accomplished in terms of legacy and magic achievements, but I'll do my best. Uh, just really excited to be here. I've been having a lot of fun working on magic-related stuff. My day job is Cardboard Live, so just working on a lot of things for Cardboard Live, trying to improve the experience for streamers. We wrapped up Mythic Championship 6, uh, and we are now preparing for 7, which is coming up really soon. And in addition to that, just doing a little bit of podcasting like you guys, uh, cranking out Humans of Magic episodes. So that's uh, that's that's a little bit about what's been going on with me right now. So yeah, for for those of you who actually happen to live under a rock and don't know James, James is not only, together with Wilson Hunter, the person who is bringing us Cupboard Live, he's also a very accomplished author and well, also podcaster in, in the Magic Multiverse. So... 
Humans of Magic, that's your latest book, right? That came out. Previously, you released, I think, a couple of years ago, Magic the Addiction. And now you turned what I want to say, one of the best podcasts, not only in Magic, but to me, like, I honestly mean it. Like, we are friends, but I honestly mean that Humans of Magic is probably one of the best podcasts in all of esports. I listen to a lot of other podcasts that are not metric related and this is like your interview technique is absolutely outstanding. That's why I'm almost like if we weren't friends, I would be starstruck having you on tonight. <laughs> I want to say. So can can you tell us a little bit about Humans of Magic, um, especially about the book that you just released, just to, for people who are curious about that? Oh, well, you're being far too kind, Julian. I just enjoy doing magic content like you guys and the Humans of Magic book is essentially a greatest hits collection of 12 of the best interviews that I've conducted over the years. The The interviews were done via audio, but I took the time to transcribe them into text because I realized that there are some people that really enjoy reading about the interviews or reading the interviews. And that's what I tried to do. Basically, the book has the interviews that I enjoyed the most. They had some really relevant themes. Uh, in fact, um, our one of our co-hosts on this show, Bob Huang, was actually in the book. And it's it's really just taking the interviews, adding a little bit of introductions, uh, trying to create some themes to unify them together. And that's really the book in a nutshell. And where can people get that? I, I would guess it's on Amazon. It is on Amazon. It is on basically all of the Amazon marketplaces, whether in the US or otherwise. You can get it on Amazon for both paperback or Kindle. Or you could have also gotten it by signing up to the All of Legacy event in Beijing uh, last, actually earlier this month, right? I saw a lot of people who were actually standing in line to get your book to actually get your signature into the book. And now that I think about it, why didn't I get that? I should have actually brought my copy. I missed out. Next don't time, worry, I don't guess. worry about it. I'll hook you up next time. But yes, I if you happen to run into me somewhere, I have stacks and stacks of the book available. <laughs> so there you go. Awesome. In speaking of the legacy all of events, uh that's James, maybe you can tell us something about that. I, I've been to that tournament as well. I had an amazing experience in China, my second time in China. And this tournament, a lot of, like, we've teased it a couple of times on the podcast, and now it actually happened. So, for those who don't know about it, James, can you tell us a little bit about, about Beijing Orlov? Yeah, absolutely. So, Beijing Legacy Orlov, this year was a 10K. The prize pool has just gotten larger and larger. So, it's basically a, a passion project because we have a very generous sponsor, uh, Haobuo, who also known as Mr. Orlov. I, I guess it's a Lord of War reference. He really That's enjoys that. That's how the just introduced him. I like that a lot. Exactly. So it's a pseudonym. And he's been holding legacy tournaments. I think this year was the seventh annual tournament. And we really wanted to have a grassroots legacy tournament because, first of all, he really loves legacy. And we have a pretty vibrant magic scene in general in China. And there's a lot of players who don't often get the chance to travel outside of China to play in events for various reasons. And so we wanted to have something homegrown that is actually fairly special and people feel involved and they can play for big stakes. And so this is, I think, one of the biggest cash prize tournaments around. For a $40 entry fee, you have a chance to win something like $3,000 in cash for the grand prize. And so it's very prestigious. We hold it every year. We do a lot of raffle draws and promotion. Sometimes we get special foreign guests such as yourself, Julian, to attend the, the tournament. And it's just an all-around good time. So that's that's really what the 
the tournament's about. It's an annual tournament. It's held in Beijing every year, usually around November, December timeframe. And it kind of runs like clockwork. So we did one this year, and there will definitely be another one in 2020. Already looking forward to that. I had such an amazing experience there. Uh, we talked a little bit about it on your podcast, where I was a guest two weeks ago. And I just want to say, I had two very different but super interesting experiences in China. Like last year, uh, us and Wilson went together and we did a lot of stuff together. This time, I, I was exploring the city a little bit more of my own. And I don't know, I mean, I really got that kind of, I don't want to say lost in translation vibe because that's, you know, that's a movie based in, in Japan, but it certainly felt a little bit like that. You know, if, you, if you're like in this big foreign city and uh, I, I had this apartment that you provided for me, which was like super nice of you. And it really gave me the feeling like for a week of actually living in Beijing as a foreigner and with, with everything that comes along with that, like how to get food, how, where do you meet people, like meet up with expats and, and like hear their life stories. And to me, that's, It was, even though it was just a week, it was incredibly inspiring to me. To like, to, to I almost want to say like, magic was almost secondary to to this kind of trip, just because of the the cultural experience. This time was even more pronounced. I want to say. I think Eric, you also went last year, right? I think you might have been considering this year. Maybe we're gonna see you next year again, depending on on where you are in the world. I did go last year. This year, it was not really in my consideration, just because the trip. I mean, I was I was in Thailand last year, so it was a much easier trip. Um, but it was definitely really fun and I would like to hopefully be able to go back again. Uh, if who knows where, where I'll, what my circumstances will be next year, but I'd love to go. Yeah, that would be amazing. I think we also had some international representation this year. Uh, we also had Peter from, from Austria who showed up and I think that, oh yeah, Yeet, right? From Turkey. We, we will speak about his tech later on. So that, that's definitely cool. And I'm just like mentioning this so often on the podcast, if you've watched, uh, listened to the last couple of episodes, because I would really love to see even more foreigners at this tournament, not only because it's such a special experience, but because it's also very profitable. I think you, we actually would need to calculate how you need to go to actually justify the trip finance-wise. But I mean, you're not going to these tournaments to, to break even or make money. I mean, when people like, that's an entirely different discussion. What makes a pro? I've, I've heard people call me a pro and I always felt like, no, like the guys like Reed Duke, LSV, those are pros. And in the end, it doesn't matter. It, it's, It's really about the experience. And if you get to break even, that's even better. So, And there's few super international legacy tournaments that are more suitable for breaking even than the legacy all of 10K, which still blows my mind, right? We, we had 100 people this year. So basically for every every person entering, there, were, there was like $100 into the prize pool. And I think that the sign-up fee is only like $40 or $42. So just, <laughs> I don't know where you would find that anywhere in the world. But in speaking of playing in the tournament, actually, James, you didn't play in the tournament. Actually, you also didn't play in the tournament last year. I'm so sorry. <laughs> But you got to... <laughs> you weren't good enough, right? You didn't qualify. No, seriously. <laughs> you, you did commentary this year again, right? Yeah, I was part of the organizational team. And I'm one of the, the, the players there who's bilingual. And so last year, we tried to do a little bit of bilingual commentary. This year I also did commentary, but it was purely in Mandarin. And we're actually going to hand it off to the excellent, excellent legacy commentators that who exist in North America, like Anurag Das and others too, to, to basically take that on. And so uh, anyways, bottom line is I still did the commentary this year and had a good time. 
you know, I, I, I'm basically more involved in the organization and, and promotion of it. And so I was happy to basically not play in it and just just help out with the logistics. From what I can say, the, the, your commentary team is quite professional in the setup that you have. Uh, I gotta admit, when I first came to China, I didn't expect much in terms of like technical setup. Maybe there was actually some kind of prejudice that I had, but it looked better than most tournaments I go to here in Europe have. Uh, so yeah, really happy to see that. And from my side, maybe I'm quickly gonna speak about my tournament. I played Rock Diver, surprise, surprise, uh, pretty much the same list that I played in the Legacy Premier League. And spoiler alert, I didn't get to day two. So in order to day two, you needed to finish in the top 16 of the top 100 players, which would have required something like a very good five and two or better. I think there were a couple of five and two players who didn't make day two uh, because of tiebreakers. And I ended the first day at four and three. So unlike last year where I managed to break that, Uh, I couldn't get that this year. So I don't want to get too too deep into the all the details about my tournament, but let me just quickly go through the first round. So my first round, I have a buy. Very convenient. <laughs> Thank you very much. In the second round, uh, I am actually put into the feature match area and I'm up against what turns out to be Esper Mentor. I end up winning in three games. Uh, it's gonna be on my YouTube by next week. So actually, if you're listening to this, uh, you could actually be listening to this in the weekend. Anyway, so it's gonna be on my YouTube pretty soon. You can watch that over there. Uh, after the match, James, you actually came over and told me um, that that my opponent had a couple of interesting cards that I didn't really get to see. Is like like Kaya, not not Kaya Ghost Assassin, but the other Kaya that like removes creatures and stuff. But looks like things didn't really work out very well for them. I actually ended up sideboarding out all of my wastelands because I thought they were like straight up blue white miracles and didn't really get to see black until like very late in the third game. But yeah, that that worked out pretty well for me. Uh, in the third round, I'm paired against something quite interesting. I think a deck that I want to speak a little bit about later on, which is blue-green Omnitel. So not your not your typical mono blue or like splash red Omnitel. It's actually mono. It's green Omnitel that played three Veil of Summer as well as like Carpet of Flowers in the sideboard. And yeah, that that was. You don't often hear me say I get unlucky. I hope at least. I hope I don't have that that image of somebody who always says, oh, I got unlucky there and then I got unlucky next round and something just happened and I got unlucky. But this one, this one really was one of those matches where just like the cantrips let me down big time and I ended up losing it in three. But round four, I make up for it. And I'm almost sorry, but I ended up playing against elves. And I played Renin Six in the second turn, and the game was pretty much over. I, I, I almost felt sorry for the guy as soon as I saw, like when I saw them fetch for for a basic forest, I was already feeling, oh, could this be? And then they play Korean Ranger, I untapped and made Renin Six, and you can feel the consternation in your opponent's manners, even though they they might not even speak English. It's just okay. <laughs> <laughs> the body language, right? All that stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, I, I felt, felt so sorry. It, there, there was something like when I when I see somebody playing elves and I destroy them. I also did that with miracles when I played in a tournament once. I, I I just feel like I'm betraying something, even though I don't feel like I'm I'm married to the deck. It's still like the deck that gave me my biggest success, and and it not doing well hurts me a little bit. But in speaking of not doing well, next round I'm up against Mr. Olaf himself. Um, at this point I'm I think I'm three and one. Yeah, and. The next loss might 
put me out of the tournament. Uh, like I said, the, the X and two wasn't really sure whether what day two, but probably what. But I end up losing it in three games. Howbo uh, was playing Buck Fuchain, very interesting list that I also want to speak about later on. Because he played four Gilded Goose to get around the Red and Six epidemic that we're having right now. And it was one of those games that was actually quite interesting. I get destroyed in the first game. I actually managed to steal the second game from a very, very bad position. Like, I'm, I'm very far behind on board. Like, I have to make a couple of jump blocks just to, to keep my Red and Six alive. And... Howbo doesn't really manage, like, he, he has some cards, but he doesn't really manage to foster a really good offense, and he also can't really get the combo down. So he's just sitting there dirtling around a little bit, but probably, like, sitting behind something like three Fossifers, I don't know. Uh, but I managed to ultimate my Renin 6, and at this point, I'm really not sure, because this hasn't come up for me yet, if I have the emblem and I have submerged in the graveyard... Can I actually cast Submerge for his alternate cost? And as the judge confirms, I can. And then I go absolutely crazy. Because one of the reasons I, I didn't really get too deep into the game was that I was holding a lot of lands. And all of those lands instantly turn into Submerge. And <laughs> we, we just go crazy. I discard my land and Submerge his entire board pretty much. It's, it's almost like a one-sided evacuation. And managed to steal the game that way. <laughs> so if you've never done that, Renin 6 plus Submerge, absolutely amazing. But unfortunately, I end up losing the third game. I'm pretty, pretty sure I could have drawn the third game, but I didn't really want to play towards a draw. And Haubo and I spoke about it later on over dinner. And he also didn't really want the draw because he felt he could have also secured the draw had he played in a different way, but he was playing for the win and so was I. Looking back, if I really wanted to maximize, like, quote-unquote, EV, I guess, I should have probably pushed for the draw, but there's something... You know, I don't... Don't know how to describe it, James. I, I talked to you a little bit about it. There's something about like going to going there and and being well a guest in China and and also being a competitive player that I felt like okay, I think I just like wanna push for the win. And even though it's more like a 30% win that I can push for as opposed to like a 99% draw, it was probably like the wrong move in wise. I just felt like <laughs> I don't want to say the right thing to do because that would imply that people who force the draw are doing the wrong thing, which they certainly are not. Uh, it was just one of those things. Yeah, I think it's a matter of preference and you're a very fierce competitor. So I can definitely see you going for the winning line. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, <laughs> looking back, of course, this this was the thing, right, that that put me out of, of top 16 contention. But I don't hate it. Like, I, I still believe in hopefully changing magic tournament structure in general in a way that draws aren't really anything that any player would look forward to but yeah anyway <laughs> looking back i i just feel like oh, i wanted to win the game so badly but i couldn't okay so excellent two i still think there might be a chance to get into the still get into the day two but i get immediately crushed by blue white red mentor it wasn't even like miracles or anything it was straight up blue white red mentor uh, i lose in two games first game doesn't really work out for me mulligan a lot and like get the wrong end of a couple of trades second game super interesting situation uh, and I would actually like to hear your thoughts on that as well. So if, if any of those situations are in the tournament that I want to talk about, it's this one. At the end of my opponent's turn, he's tapped out, he's got four cards in hand, and he has rest and peace in play. I have exactly two lands, a force plus pitch, and pyroblast, and renin six. So on his end of turn, I can go for the return to the nature on the rest and peace, 
and protect it with a force of will and untap into Renin 6. Oh, and by the way, I also have Tarmogoyf in play that also gets to put a lot of pressure. Of course, I could also wait until my turn and do that, play a land and have the Parablast up. So I would have double protection, but if I do that, then I can't play Renin 6. So I would play Renin 6 into open mana if, if, I, if I was to do that. So if your opponent has four cards in hand after the rest in peace, do you put him on double force of will? If, I don't know, Eric, what do you think about that? I probably made this way too complicated here. <laughs> I think I, under, I I think what I would have done is just tried to, if he's tapping out for the rest in peace and you have force of will and the answer to rest in peace, I think <clears throat> I would just try and force the rest in peace, even though you have the answer, because then they're more inclined. If you're willing to fight, over it with your forcible you should i think you should force first and then they force back thinking you don't really have an answer to it and then you and then you answer it on your turn or after yeah. after they forced uh your force yeah i would agree with eric because you you basically are forcing a force check on them right i mean there's no way they're going to be able to counter more than one thing if they have a force of will so you just basically test them and if if uh if you pass the test or they choose not to force back, then your coast is clear for the red and six. And you chip in hmm. with the Tarmogoyf damage that the the rest in peace will shrink your Tarmogoyf. It's also dependent on context. I don't know what you had seen from your opponent or what had happened up to that. Oh, nothing else. Like, I, I played a Tarmogoyf. He played um, the rest in peace, and that's, that's how the match had played out thus far. But yeah, so to make this less complicated, because I think I didn't explain it very well, I ended up tapping out at their end of turn to re return to nature, the rest in peace. They had the force of will. I force of will their force of will, and the last two cards in their hand were also force of will plus pitch. So at that point, I'm looking at the pyroblast in my hand that I can't cast because it's their end of turn, and I'm feeling so bad because had I gone to my turn, that the whole interaction would have worked out very much in my favor. And they would be sitting there with zero cards and I would be able to cast Red and Six next turn. As opposed to what happened in this game, I I have a useless Tarmogoyf, I have a useless Red and Six, and I have no way of ever getting rid of the rest in peace. So may maybe that's something that, that I should also consider because the Return to Nature was my only card in the entire 75 that would get rid of the rest in peace, which is a big pain for me. Maybe I should have played it extra safe. So... I think that's something I didn't consider at the time that the Return to Nature was was my only real answer. And if I lose this battle and they actually do end up having two first of Worlds, I get destroyed. I think that's actually the, the the thing that I didn't factor in. Because sometimes you feel like, okay, well, I, I made a bad trade, but I can still cantrip my way into a removal spell and they are out of cards. No, I can't. Like, all the cards I ever draw, if I, if I find, I don't know, Hooting Mandarus, that's a, that's a six-mana spell. And yeah, maybe I should have considered that as well. So yeah, this is this is basically how my day one ended. I played another round just for fun, pretty much against another blue white miracles players. Just so many tundras in Beijing, which was part of my downfall, I guess. And I went in two very long but also very one-sided games. It was just like one of those matches where your miracles opponent never gets to resolve any of their card advantage spells. Like they get to do everything except generate card advantage. So the moment you resolve one of your card advantage engines like Renin 6, you eventually just take over the game. I think James, you took a couple of pictures of that and you watched. And it it really felt like one of those games where it's like it was super smooth sailing. You get to plus your Ren a couple of times and then turn all of that into brainstorm. It almost felt like Corblade, playing Corblade back when when um Chase was legal. That's right. That, that felt like a very nice end to the day. That was that. And no day two for me. I, I get 30th place out of 100 players. And 
for day two, we do have a second, uh, we do have a side event. And James, I think you got to play into that as well. And you, you ended up quite successful in it. Do you remember? Yeah, I got, I got quite lucky in some spots. So I decided to play a deck that I had not played in three years, which was Death and Taxes. I basically just took XJ Cloud's list that I found on Goldfish and ran it and ended up going four and one over five rounds in the side events. So I was really, really happy about that. And how do you feel about uh, Death in Texas right now? It's fine if you're running giver runes and you are less affected by uh, having one toughness creatures. So I would say it felt pretty good. I don't know if my matchups were what I expected to face because it was a lot of combo decks. I think I might have faced Storm, Dredge, and I can't remember all the matchups, but it was definitely matchups where it was I wasn't facing up against Ren and Six every round. I also faced Burn in the first round, which is kind of like a combo deck, right? I think people have talked about Burn just basically being a Storm Six deck. If you resol resolve six spells, you you win. And uh, so it was it was not a very conventional set of matchups. I wasn't playing against Rugdelver every round like um, people did in the main event or or yourself, Julian, you know, playing Rugdelver every round. But uh, I, I thought Death and Taxes seemed pretty good. It felt pretty smooth, and so I was pretty happy with it. Yeah, cool. Did, did you actually play the four copies of Giver of Runes, or did you play a mix with Mother of Runes? I played four copies of Giver and zero copies of Mother. Wow, okay, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Putting your money where your mouth is. Like, I gotta be Drennan 6, okay, this is how I'm gonna do it. Yeah, I'm kind of the uh, I'm kind of like the extreme guy. So you know, I don't if I'm either gonna drink water or Coke, I'm not gonna go for Diet Coke. I don't want to hedge, so I'm just gonna go with the four givers. You know, <laughs> I don't drink Diet Coke. You know what? I actually think that more people should do it like that. Um, not saying like in in regards to how you build your deck necessary, but in, in regards to how you play the game and how you're, how you're playing to win. But the, I guess that's something I, I talk about a lot, right? No middle-of-the-road things, like commit to to what you think is the right play, or in your case, to what you think would make a good would make a good deck. Um, I also played the side event. I finished it at 3-1-1. One, one. I think we, we got second and fourth place in, in the side event, which was pretty cool. I ended up losing the quote-unquote finals to burn, which is a matchup that can be quite rough for you uh, on the Rugdiver side. And speaking of like committing really hard, I, I tried to beat my opponent by basically wastelanding myself as soon as the third turn and basically giving up my entire board just to make a hoot hooting mandrels and have, I think, a force and, and something as a backup and trying to ride it to victory. But it didn't get there. But it felt like the right play uh, at the time. But yeah, Burn, Burn actually in general is like a pretty... I'm not even sure if it's popular, but it's certainly a successful deck in Beijing. Uh, I remember when we went last year, they had two copies in the top 16. And this year, there were another two copies in the top 16 and it won the day two side event. So yeah, Mono Red in China. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. Yeah, I really like Burn right now. I really like it. Something else I, I want to point out. So if you want to get a good feeling about the tournament, James actually has a photo essay that we have on in the show notes on itsjulian.com. And you took a lot of really great pictures just to, to give people a feel for the atmosphere and for the vibe that's going on in the event. So definitely check that out. In speaking of the tournament itself, we had exactly 100 decks. Uh, the tournament breakdown and the metagame breakdown is going to be on my website as well. But just to give people a general idea of what was going on in Beijing. So we had 21% 
Timur Delver decks. We had 13% blue-white X control decks, 8% dark depth, 7% ad nauseum tendrils, 6% Crixus and four color control, 5% show and tell, 5% burn, and then what's labeled as 15% other fair decks and 20% other unfair decks. So what stood out to me the most, there's actually two things. The first one is a lot of blue-white control. We know that there's a lot of blue-white control traditionally in Legacy, but as of late, like people have been talking about the, the death of Tundra and how Sots of Plowshares isn't really a big thing anymore. And in part, that's certainly true, I feel. Like, it's a major reason why in Rock Delva we run Hooting Mandras over Trunin, or at least get to run uh, Hooting Mandras over Trunin Nemesis because very few people are playing that. But I certainly got burned by, by the Tundra in Beijing. Do you guys see Tundra decks making a comeback? I feel like everybody's been talking about it, but I don't know. Like we, we see Tundra fanatics like like Anorak play it at times, but I still feel like people should play more Tundras right now. I, I think the deck is no less or more popular than it was around GP Atlanta and the month or so leading up to that. Um, I think that people are splashing pretty freely with Astrolabe to fit in Oko in the deck now, in, in blue-white decks. So they're kind of blue-white-green, and people are finding some success with that. And I think that the the people not playing Tundra thing is mostly a meme. I think that the people who like to play that super grindy, Miracles-style um, style control will... There, there's a deck out there for them pretty much every metagame. Yeah, I agree with that. Where there's a will, there's a way, right? So there are some players or pilots who are really into that archetype, whether it's Stoneblade or just Control. And I see it everywhere. In fact, Eric, I think you, you said you played at the Puget Sound Battleground. I know from my friend Jeremy Edwards, also known as ESG on the Source, he says that there's actually lots of Tundra decks in on the west coast i don't know if you found that to be the case or if you heard that but it's it, it does seem like i don't know if it's regional or not but there does seem to be a fair amount of representation at events um i mean i wasn't looking that carefully uh, if and i haven't seen the metagame breakdown but uh yeah i've seen a fair fair number of i think like i was saying like people who who liked miracles and really liked it and didn't quit legacy just because they banned top will find a way to use their cards and play legacy and uh and those decks are reasonable so so yeah people definitely are playing them and and usually people may not really think of them as tundra decks since they don't usually play out tundra until like turn five <laughs> but they're they're mostly they're mostly basic basics and with astrolabe now to splash for green and and you play council's judgment you play terminus you play supreme verdict maybe uh, mentor and then there's teferi and yeah there's there's lots of different builds with that and uh they're they seem pretty reasonable and they seem pretty good against the rug delver decks out there i i know that i struggle against the blue white based control decks when i play rug delver so yeah same for me that that's basically the bane of my existence at least the way i'm building the deck right now so maybe it's time for a change for rug delver to to adopt the deck. because you know the how, how the at least the thinking for a lot of people was that at least Miracles was not as viable anymore because Run and Six was such a powerful card and they, they had a hard time stopping it. Uh, but the thing at, as well is that even though these these decks that use Run and Six, they get to utilize it pretty well, they also pair it with stuff that's traditionally pretty weak to Miracles or rather Snapcaster Swords decks, which is actually the big thing, right? It's not the Miracles thing. 
And so I think that, like you mentioned, the blue-white decks are probably much more playable than people have been giving them credit for over the last couple of months. And I'm not that surprised now thinking about that to to see it that well represented and also doing quite well at, at the out-of event. Of course, if you look at uh, other events that we're going to um, speak about later on, Rug Delver is still the number one deck to beat, but it certainly has a lot of weaknesses to to anything that, that gets to use Snapcaster Swords as well as a potential rest in peace from the sideboard, which we don't really have too many answers for. Another thing that stood out to me that actually made me really sad, I put like a, a, a unhappy smiley in our Google Doc. If you look closely at the way the metagame works out, all of those top decks, none of them are non-blue fair mid-range decks. Something like, well, I guess Maverick, and then you might argue over... Okay, I'm going to concede that Elves isn't fair. <laughs> but something like Maverick, which is just like so close and dear to my heart, or or, or even just like... People are going to laugh at me, but I'm going to say it's something like Chant, which I think is also like not the worst deck, even though it's definitely not my kind of play style. It's just a little bit too clunky, I almost want to say. So if you if you look at those numbers, we have 15% other fair decks and all decks on top of that are either not fair or blue. And by blue, I don't mean like I don't care about the color, but I do care about the blue, blue play style, which is quite dominant in that regards. So I don't know. I really hope that we will see a comeback of non-fair blue mid-range because if it's a maximum of 15% of the metagame, that's that's so little. I, I just want to see more of those intense creature battles, which I guess, Eric, you're going to disagree with me, but like the, the way I knew Legacy, Legacy was all about creatures and creature combat and, and making that work. And I know that has changed over time and I'm probably stuck somewhat in the past. Like, Wait, when was that? Was that when Zoo was around? Because that's what I remember when, when we had creature yeah, combat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, I, I got into Legacy, like, in 2006, seven, and I remember when people always said, oh, Legacy, that's the format where you get to play creatures and interact with creatures. Whereas Standard was, like, quite broken for a lot of those times where people played, like, combo decks and Standard and Extended. And Legacy was the, was the one format where you went to, to well, I always mention it, to cast Rocks Warmonk and attack with Rocks Warmonk and that kind of stuff. Or even play something like Murfolk, which I guess you can still play, but it's it's not anywhere close to, to what it used to be. So I know Legacy has changed, and I think we're we're just coming out of a period where Legacy is heavily dominated by blue control decks, which, funnily enough to me, I was always told, oh, blue control, that's not viable in Legacy. Like, you can play it, but it's the format's just too powerful for a control deck to actually really thrive. So, yeah, that that's just, like, my bias. I, um, I don't know. I guess another fair deck, non-blue fair deck, would be Death in Texas, which traditionally, at least in the West, has always been like one of the most played decks. And looking at this metagame breakdown, it's, it seems to be almost non-existent, which makes me really sad. <laughs> I don't know, James, we're probably not going to see you at Bologna, but you would definitely um, be carrying the flag for Death in Texas if you were here, right? I think you also, you dabbled a little bit with Dark Depth and played it at the GP. But is, is Death in Texas really the deck you, you would play? No, I mean, if it was a larger event, I'd probably be going with Dark Depths. Uh, I mean, oh, I, I, I've traitor. been playing. Yeah. In <laughs> so that's the guy who's not playing Elves in Bologna. No, no. I've, I've been playing Dark Depths at weeklies and in Legacy paper events since March. And basically from March all the way to September, I was trying to make a 2020 every tournament I played in. I played GP Atlanta and... 
SCG Syracuse with Dark Depths didn't do super well, but that was a deck that I thought was pretty good. But I think the metagame sort of caught on to it. And so, I mean, I, I don't claim to be the, the most skilled player in the world or anything. Not, not as accomplished as you guys, as I said. But I just felt like the deck had a lot of difficulty. And there's also a level of inbreeding that was happening within Dark Depths Mirrors where, you know, the, you were able to go over the top of other Dark Depths decks if you were a certain type of deck. So... It, it felt pretty hard, and I, I'm always of the the opinion that in Legacy, you just want to sidestep a lot of the the uh, the grindiness. And so when you start playing a combo deck and it starts getting too grindy, that's when I feel like I should move in another direction. Okay, fair enough. Um, and speaking of combo decks that can be really grindy, uh, we already spoke about it. Haubo actually ended up winning his own tournament. Mr. Olaf took down the All of 10k playing Buck food chain with four gilded goose and we talked to him about it after the event and he specifically mentioned that this is a concession to Renin 6 and for those like it's not the biggest legacy staple who don't know what gilded goose does it's a one two which is the most important thing for a green and when it comes to play it produces food and you can tap it and sacrifice a food to add i think it's a mana of any color to to the board and you can also i think for two mana tap it and create a food token so it's basically like like a one shot um which creature produces mana of any kind it's, it's basically like a one shot death watch i mean i want to say uh, that gets to survive it's actually zero six. two so it has no power but then again you're oh, never going to okay. really want to attack with it anyway it has flying as well oh ah, okay so you know what little stuff like that can actually be sometimes relevant right if, if you just need that extra turn to block the dark depth uh, token that that merit large so I, i'm still fully on board i just like i love it when my when my mana dudes just like tap all the time but how certainly made it work and i think other than that let me put up the list it's pretty stock pretty straightforward list i guess he has got two hydrate cresses which is another way to kill when you have infinite mana with food chain uh, while also playing a creature that's well, I guess decent. Uh, hasn't really done too much in Legacy, but if you, if you have a little bit of mana, you can certainly use it for that. I hate to use hyperbole, but this deck is super well positioned if you expect to face Rug Delver every round, because he actually told me that out of the the many rounds of magic he played, he might have played against Rug Delver almost every round, including against you, right? And yeah. it's it's practically a buy for him in this type of matchup. Yeah, it was interesting to me that he mentioned that Submerge isn't actually all that great against him because, you know, how Rock Delver these days plays two or three Submerges pretty much all the time. And it feels like a card you definitely bring in because you still have stuff to take out. But I also certainly noticed, even though he plays um, actually a one-off Gurmak on Angler only, it, it I didn't really get as much value out of it as I wanted. Like, you don't really want to Submerge an Ice Fang Codal, I guess, uh, even though it's okay. And he just clumped up the board so much that my submergers couldn't really provide any kind of decent tempo. Uh, so, I mean, I, I've liked Food Chain in the past, and maybe people should be experimenting with it a little bit more. I mean, it always has that built-in problem of of performing the combo of Magic Online. That's why decks like like Food Chain or also sometimes Bomberman don't get as much representational testing online, so it's not put into the public eye as much. But Hobo certainly made it work for him in Beijing, so wouldn't be surprised to see more of this deck in the future. Yeah, it's obviously a dog against faster combo, but it's it's pretty good against the the fair decks for obvious reasons. 
And speaking of fast combo decks, oh my god. <laughs> now, now we get a special one. We we, we get um, Yitz, that actually that's a friend of yours, right? From from Beijing. Actually originally from Turkey, who is living Be- who's been living in Beijing for quite a while now, whom you introduced me to, really nice guy. Actually ended up inviting us for dinner on the last night, which was really nice of him. So if you're listening, Yitz, hey, thank you very much. Shishi. <laughs> and he was playing what people call Ice Station Zebra. Do you guys have any idea why the deck is called that? Obscure Legacy Reference 102. I have no idea. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm ready to hear this. I I think I've seen it explained and I kind of rolled my eyes. So no offense to anybody who explained it. I don't remember. <laughs> That's always the best is when you hear the explanation and then you don't actually care for the explanation. So it just it, it just goes out one year. It goes into one year and goes out the other. That's how I felt too. I don't remember either. Isn't Ice Station Zebra... Okay, so there's different versions of... Tin fins depths, isn't that what it is? It's just tin fins and depths. Exactly, yeah. And then they. I like that name actually. Why don't we just go with that? <laughs> yeah. So some people call it Ice Station Zebra, and there's some reason. And I heard it once, and I can't remember. <laughs> it tells you a lot about legacy players, but when we feel like okay, tin fins is just obscure enough of a name that, that we can agree on that. But Ice Station Zebra is just like way too much out there. Um, the, <laughs> the way the thing I've heard about it is that apparently like tin fins is based on some TV children's TV show. Okay, I could be totally wrong here, but. That's what I heard. And then apparently there's a zebra or a, I wouldn't know what an ice station zebra is, but apparently there's a zebra involved as well. So now that they have added the well, the dark depth combo, it, it becomes an ice station zebra tin fins. I don't know. That, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure somebody in the comments will, will be able to explain this to us. Uh, once we finish this cast, I'm definitely going to Google ice station zebra. And there's probably like five different explanations. Just, you know, the Nick Fit way, how, how people have like different ways. For I, I'm still trying to figure out Nick Fit, man. So as soon as I figure that one out, I'll come back to this. You know what? Your next book is going to be about that. Nick yeah. Fit, The Uncovery or something. CSI Nick Fit. <laughs> Understanding Nick Fit. That's going to be my next book. Oh my God. <laughs> it, it literally is just play every, play play bad cards. That's what, it's it's going to be one page. But anyway, shout out to Matt Pavlik. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, if Matt hears this, actually, I guess that, that that's just like the, the thing that Matt has adopted. He He's just brewing with a ton of, I don't even want to say questionable cards because I just completed a 5-0 league with, um, what's it called? Shifting Ceratops, which is a card that I would bet Matt is very fond of. Shifting Ceratops, uh, Questing Beast, those are the kinds of cards that I would associate with him. Uh, but yeah, Ice Station Zebra. We already talked about it. It's basically a Tinfin stack that also has the Dark Depth combo in it. So as that, it's a little bit slower than most Tinfin decks, uh, but probably not by much. And it has the added backup of sometimes just making the 2020 and killing your opponent that way, which makes it so hard to play against because, first of all, you don't even know whether it's actually Ice Station Zebra or Tinfins. Could be straight up Tinfins, or it could be Ice Station Zebra. So it puts you in this weird spot, especially in the first game, unless you, I guess, scouted your opponent, where you don't really know how exactly to play against it. I think most people would just ignore the Dark Depth combo in the first game because unless you're like a... A deck that has tons of ways of interacting with it. You're just try, trying to beat them the regular way. And on top of that, the deck is not only super fast like Tinfins, it's also a little bit more resilient. It plays, I think, th- yeah, it plays three Living Wishes, which gives you extra access to all the different combo pieces, as well as a couple of utility cards. And he told me a lot of times he actually ends up winning by Laboratory Maniac. So even if you get something down like 
say, I think Ensnaring Bitch. I think I actually saw him win straight through Ensnaring Bitch just because Children of Colise is going to give you so much life that you can basically draw your entire deck, get the Laboratory Maniac down, and win on the very same turn. So having our resident Grizzlebrand expert on the show tonight, uh, again, Eric, have you have you tried this deck before or have you stayed true to Black Red really made up when it comes to Grizzlebranding? Actually, believe it or not, uh, Tinfin's Depths is what was the first Grizzlebrand deck I ever played. This Ice Station Zebra deck was the first time I ever, I ever played a Reanimator deck in Legacy. <laughs> is that how you got hooked on Grizzlebrand? Well, okay, so I saw the very first iteration of this deck that I saw was by Clone 109 on MTGO, and you got like a 5-0, and this was, this was like in 2015 or something. I saw, there was no depths in the deck at the time, or maybe, no, there was. There was Dark Depths, and there was Entomb, and there was Gristlebrand, and there was LED, and there was Laboratory Maniac, and I was like, what in the world is this pile of cards, and how does this make any sense at all? I didn't get it. <laughs> and so I thought, wow, well, he five node with it. I, I'll just try it on Magic Online. And then I quickly understood that it was what what it was trying to do was do the Tin Fins thing where where Lab Maniac is your way of winning on the same turn. I didn't get it just on paper, but when I played it, I figured it out. And then uh, I, I've told the story a bunch of times, but then I had a lot of the cards, but not like the LEDs in paper. So I went to the L. I went to the to my local game store and I was looking in their their binders and I saw Lake of the Dead and I was just like why don't I just put Lake of the Dead in the deck <laughs> Next instead of right. LED and I'll put in a, a Grave Titan as well and so I'll have like Reanimator Depths and I just cut the Tin Fins part so I won't win the same turn but I'll just be Reanimator Depths and then I had a lot of success with that I even got Bob to play it for a long time and we both were winning a lot on Magic Online and yeah, that's how that was. That's how I first started reanimating in Legacy, and then I after that I tried reanimating Black Red Reanimator, straight up Black Red Reanimator. So I wonder whether this deck is actually much better than everybody of us realizes, right? I mean, you you played it and you've been very success, successful with it, and apparently Bob has has done the same. Uh, you don't really get to see the deck played a lot. Like, there's nobody streaming it. There's hardly anyone ever putting up results with it. But that could be just a, f a function of nobody playing it. So I think I actually want to try this in Magic Online right now. Uh, but but I, I guess not right now because it's like half past one in the morning for me, <laughs> and I still haven't fully adjusted to German time. But yeah, this this is something else. And and he also told us right, he doesn't really get to play a lot right now. And he still made top top four actually he, he got very close to the finals so maybe maybe there's more than people see in the deck it's i think is it faster than i think it's slightly faster than black red reanimator but it's also a little bit less resilient uh but i guess it has the duck depth combo actually you know what it's uh, this deck is fascinating i want to try it oh i was gonna say i think it's uh about a turn slower than black red reanimator but more resilient because you have two angles Oh yeah, because of the added duck depth angle. Yeah, I was I was probably more thinking in in terms of the original Tin Fins, which is which is a deck I That's played faster, yeah. something like six or seven years ago, which was super super fast. Like if if you got Grizzlebrand on turn two, you were also like behind schedule. Yeah, but with this one, yeah, yeah, good point, good point. Um, I think 
I'm going to try it out. I don't really get to stream a lot these days, and I think my next stream is going to be Dinosaur Stumpy, which is a deck that actually, Eric, you, you had a confrontation with last night on the IPL. Um, yes. Maybe you can speak about that a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, that, that's that's Yeet's deck. Um, Ice Station Zebra, super cool, super fast, and also super good backup plan. Like, if your backup plan is making a 2020 flying indestructible, you know your primary plan is probably really strong. And it can, yeah, it can do that pretty easily with like a, an LED. You just play out uh, an LED in a dark depths in a stage and you have that on turn two. Yes, that happens definitely. Yeah, it's actually pretty straightforward. I love that. Another deck that I wanted to point out is, oh, I guess, James, you can help me with the pronunciation. I, I want to give the players some representation. Um, not only like that dude, but I'm very bad at pronunciation. Is it Shen Tan? Uh, Chen, Chen Tan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> my my Mandarin is, is getting to it. Like, I cannot more, say more than thank you right now. Cool. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's basically blue-white, very minor splash black control, but it's very different from any of those lists that I've ever seen before. So basically the creature suit is just two Snapcaster Mages, and then we play nine Planeswalkers. It's three Narsets, three Karn the Great Creator, Teferi Time Reveler, and two copies of Sahidi Sublime Artificer. For those of you who don't know what the card does, it's a three mana Planeswalker with five loyalty. You can cast it for a colorless, and then there's a hybrid blue-red and a blue-red. It has a static ability. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a 1-1 colorless server artifact creature token. And for minus two, target artifact you control becomes a copy of another target artifact creature you control until end of turn. Except it's an artifact in addition to its other types. Actually, I'm thinking about what does it actually do? It becomes a copy. So it must interact with something from the cyber because this deck doesn't have any other creatures so it can either like only copy its own creatures or or copy artifacts that can get from the sideboard so i guess you could turn now turning creatures into astrolabes doesn't really make sense i actually wonder is this, is this really just in a deck can you guys help me out i'm actually not fully understand is it really just in a deck for the passive ability hold on it makes tokens when they cast spells yeah it's like yeah, a, but- it's like a young pyromancer it can copy snapcaster mage too i think it can copy Snapcaster Mage, but it does. You don't get the the comes to play ability, right? So it's just like a two one. Okay, well then it's like a young pyromancer on a planeswalker. So is is that the entire idea? Okay, that's interesting. I, I was wondering whether there's more to it, but yeah, I think that's that's. Well, you can copy I mean, another artifact, and he's got a whole board of artifacts that he can tutor for with Karn, right? Yeah, that's what what I was gonna get to. Um, but for the main deck, it, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm wondering whether there's anything I'm missing, well, I but mean, I think there's nothing. He doesn't have any... It's his win condition. Like, other than... He's got Karn and Snapcaster Mage, and that's it. So it's also... Sahili's another win condition. It's Oh, yeah, he's... That's probably the main It's reason, like a young Pyromancer, so every games. time he casts a spell, yeah. it's a token. So it's like a mentor young Pyromancer, but uh, it, it doesn't die to a lightning bolt or yeah. whatever. Or the two supreme verdicts uh, that he's running, and it also doesn't right. get turned off by humility, which is also one of the deck. Yeah, and also the the like off chance that you want to copy something could come up. Yeah, of course. Like if you grab something from the sideboard, like James mentioned, right? And I think there's actually interesting cards that he can grab from the sideboard. Uh, but f- let's finish the the main deck first. So. Other than that, it plays what people would call the blue soup, uh, I guess these days. Uh, the Ponder, Brainstorm, Spray PS, Salsa Plowshare, Supreme Verdict, Force of Will, and also Arkham's Astrolabe. And the Arkham's Astrolabe is actually important because Karn can grab two black artifacts from the sideboard, where Bayful Strix and Titolo Scala, which this deck can only cast by using the Arkham's Astrolabe. 
So I guess if you if you turn all of your one one tokens that you make into Baleful Strix, that's actually a nice way to to basically stonewall the opponent and and like the, get stop get, stop them from attacking. Uh, I'm I'm just a little bit flabbergasted by <laughs> by this deck because I've really not seen anything like this before because it also play it's playing four copy of Stifle, which for a control deck is very unusual. Like the last time we've seen Stifle effects played in a control deck. Wasn't like some variants of like Landstill at this point, it's like 12 years ago or something. But this guy's playing four copies, so whatever he's doing, it's obviously working because I, I'm looking it up right now and he finished seventh place. Yeah, yeah, I think it, I, I think he's just thinking of it as, as a very much like a young pyromancer, so he wants a lot of cheap spells to go along with his win condition. Yeah, he's also playing two ancient tombs to power out those planeswalkers, which are probably like quite important to his strategy. So yeah, if you if you're looking for a new take on blue white control and you like planeswalkers, you like the super friends uh, playstyle, definitely check that list out. It's also going to be on well, it's on goldfish already, and I'm also going to have a link to it on my website. The last deck that I want to point out is uh, let me put up the. Place the place is sixteenth place. Oh, this is Yu Chen, right? Is this Yuchen this is the Hu, opponent yeah. that you actually faced that in your report? Yes, that's the person I lost to in the third round, and they are playing blue green Omnitel. And this list is quite something else. It plays three Veil of Summer in the main deck, and even more so interestingly, uh, four copies of Drawn from Dreams in the main deck. And for those of you who don't know what Drawn from Dreams does, it's well, I called it the two fish card because there's two fish in the artwork. It's basically the fixed dig through time. It's a sorcery for two colorless and two blue. And you get to look at the top seven cards of your library and put any two cards from those into your hand and the rest of the bottom of your library in a random order. So this deck or this card does two things for the deck. First of all, if it's a grindy game, you can cast it just to gain card advantage and also like very good selection. And second of all, it will very likely give you a win if you ever get omniscience into play. So it, it fills the same role that Dig Through Time did for the old Omnitel decks. And while also being like not that outside of the combo, which is kind of nice, even though four mana is quite a lot to ask for. Uh, and then, of course, the three of summers to protect your combo and make or hopefully make sure that that gets to resolve. Have you, have you seen something like that, Eric? Yes, actually, this looks really familiar. It makes me wonder if they're a fan of my stream. Uh, mostly the, the Veil of Summers, but it's, pre- <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. The, I played something on, on stream like this um, a little while ago. Uh, the only difference is that I didn't play any Drown of Sar- Dreams. I haven't played that card. That card seems, like you said, quite quite clucky um, if you're not casting off Omniscience. But I also played two copies of uh, Eureka. So you, so you have... I, I think that's actually pretty good way to approach this deck because one of the issues with this deck is that it compared to a sneak and show is that this deck can be sh- surgical and uh if they surgical your show and tell you have almost no way to win the game and eureka bypasses that and also just gives you a third or f- a fifth and sixth copy of show and tell for the deck but yeah i played it and i thought it was i i, I thought it was pretty good hmm Interesting. I, w- I was wondering when I played against him whether there would be any Eurekas, because if you see green, right, that's the first card that comes to your mind. But this this seems to be straight up show and tell, just any, nothing other than that. I guess Veil of Summer also helps with not being discarded. Like, if, if you face 
something like a Thoughtseize on turn five and you have Spell Pierce, which I guess would, or, or Flusterstorm, which usually goes into that slot, you can't really do too much about it. But Rail of Summer protects you and makes sure that it's going to be much harder for the opponent to actually surgically your show and tells. So I, I can see the appeal. Um, but honestly, like every time you show me a blue-green deck, I'm already sold, even though this is not exactly the kind of play style I want to play. I just feel like blue-green go well together. And it's it's... Probably my favorite color combination, but that that's more on the on the what would that be? Vartos? No, not Vartos. Definitely not on the spike side of things. Uh, oh, like blue green. Okay, cool. Let's play anything. <laughs> One more thing I'd like to say about it with the Veil of Summer. So the Veil of Summer, uh, in the past, that spot would have been like a Spell Pierce or a Flusterstorm, like you had said, and it is at least compared to Spell Pierce, it is so much better at helping you uh, resolve your combo because of what you also mentioned, how it can protect against. Um, discard spells and it's also insanely good against storm so it has those upsides but the downside of it is there are some matchups where it does actually nothing it's just a blank green card and you're playing a wish sideboard so it's really hard to sideboard it out <laughs> <laughs> true true and unlike other cards that are sometimes dead and decks like this you can't even pitch them before so far so like you said it's, it's literally gonna sit there and and look embarrassing <laughs> but yeah that, that's a payoff right you you want power sometimes that means you you will also face inconsistency um so yeah that that's i don't want to like quickly jump to the next tournament i just want to say pitching was a really great experience and if you guys want to find out more about the event you can hit up james you can hit up me or i guess you can also ask eric on a stream about it he's been there last year if we could get even more international players to to hit that event and like the money is there to 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 be won maybe you combine it with with a vacation in china i'm just i just want to put it out there because the, the tournament series really means a lot to me so <laughs> thanks for the great event I, I know james you mentioned you're involved with the organization and i'm really looking forward to seeing the next year, or probably like seeing you personally earlier but seeing you in beijing again next year yeah definitely i look forward to it look forward to having people join us looking forward to a couple of other events that will be really big in 2012 especially following SEG's drop of legacy i think the biggest events around at least north america right now should be the eternal weekend there was an eternal weekend very recently i think eric you didn't end up going i know that bob also didn't go so actually none of us went to that tournament <laughs> So yeah, the the way I want to talk about these, I combined the Eternal Weekend and the big legacy PTQ on Magic Online uh, results-wise. And what we see there from the top eight is that there's a lot of blue-red Delver, actually. So there's not there's Rock Delver as well. There's actually lots of Rock Delver. And a lot of those decks, both Rock Delver as well as blue-red Delver, have adopted Stifle. And we've seen Stifle in those decks in the past, but it usually used to be at least as of like the last couple of months the the exception most people played a pretty stock list but now stifle seems to be pretty big uh, as well as dreaded arcanist which i guess is natural because that's that's the creature you play in blue red diver because you don't really have tamagoy for any of the other green things to do um i'm just somewhat surprised because to me it seems like those blue red diver decks seem to try and go under rock diver which I guess makes sense, right? Those Rock Delver decks have been trying to beat each other for a while by by implementing some greedier things and and pushing the deck into into the other direction. And now Blue Red Delver comes in super aggressively and like gonna stifle your mana. You you want to play all these 
quote-unquote expensive spells, like in Legacy, three mana is expensive, right? Uh, yeah, you're not going to get that, sorry. Turn one Delva, turn two Stifle Days, Wasteland, whatever. <laughs> so, how do you guys feel about Blue-Red Delva? Honestly, like, I personally have never been too much of a friend of the deck, but I know that some people have been working on it a lot. Actually, James, didn't like one of your friends just published a pretty good article about the deck? Yeah, I helped them publish it. So it's Jeremy Edwards, also known as ESG on Elvish Spirit Guide on MTG The Source. He recently played in the Mox 4K as well as the Puget Sound Battleground, and he had been playing Blue Red Delver for a while. Although his list was very unique. It actually ran four Brazen Borrowers instead of some of the other traditional cards is, is actually quite intriguing. That's why I posted a report. So if you if you want to check that out, you can go to writtenbyjames.com. You can check out the report that I posted on his behalf. But uh, tangent aside, yes, I think it is a pretty decent deck right now, but I, I think it does struggle against the most dominant deck in the in the format. And so I don't know how to feel about it because it, it's just very challenging sometimes to beat the number one deck in the format with that deck yeah i'm not sure like i played against blue red diver with uh rock diver before in the felt i don't want to say pretty good but good decent for me uh, unless they had some haymakers like blood moon when you don't expect them that's how they got me a couple of times but i've never actually played against blue red diver with stifles and i could see that being a big problem because if you if you ever get stifled and like even just on the second turn that's definitely gonna be a big problem so i'm, I'm i don't want to say i'm scared of, of playing against that kind of deck uh, but i'm definitely intrigued to see how it's gonna work out i guess that's the the confident way of saying i'm scared sure i mean there's always there's always games where they can just get you with a stifle or whatnot but i i don't know about the overall consistency of it now obviously we're looking at reports now where you know we're looking at these results where they're doing quite well so something must be working for them I, I just don't know what's what the optimal build is. Maybe you guys can, can speak more about that, and you have you guys have more experience or have faced this deck a little bit more than I have. Uh, my my thinking on it is when I first saw it, I, I was a little bit surprised to see so many. I think that there might be some, you know, that's just random circumstance that three of them made it in the top eight in one weekend and no rug delvers. But I do think that they are. I thought they were built to fight against rug delver, even though. Yeah, because. You, you have this you have this uh, ability to so a lot of the delver mirrors feel like whoever can get three lands to stick in play and be able to cast their spells through dazes and things like that is is way ahead and this deck plays basics and stifles so it kind of wins that land game and then you have like young pyromancer and true name to to blink tarmogoyfs and so then you really only need to yeah, I mean that, that's just a really good way to fight against Tarmogoyf and Renin Six is that your waste your lands aren't wastelandable and your your threats, although young Pyromancer can die to, to Renin Six, but I mean once you've gone wide that the it's a little bit difficult to deal with. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same, right? That especially the, the Stifleists are trying to exploit how mana hungry Rock Delver really is. Like it's it's not your traditional super lean Delver deck. It's actually Charvis called it a, a chunt deck in disguise. I almost want to say just because it's so good at mid-range game. And with that, of course, comes the, the necess necessity of having a lot of lands in play. And if you get, like I mentioned, right, if you get stifled on the second turn, it's it's really going to be 
or potentially devastating against a deck that can play a very aggressive game like Bruet Diver. So if that's something down your alley, you maybe want to try it out and give the Stifleist a try just because the, the results certainly speak for them. And we know sometimes, you know, just like even a dice roll can can be the difference between making top 8 or top 16, which gets your list published or not. But on average, seeing so many Bruet Diver decks with Stifle doing well recently, it's definitely something you probably want to try. It just feels good right now to be running a deck with basics and has a fairly fast clock. And not to mention Blue-Red Delver can be built in a way where it is kind of a evolved version of Burn with a little bit better card advantage and and uh, card quality. So I can definitely see that going in its favor. Yeah, yeah. Another big tournament. Hey, actually, if you think about it, like the, the last four months have, uh, four months, four weeks have given us a lot of great legacy tournaments. So I guess so much for legacy is that, uh, all over the world, we still get these really big events. Just in Japan, they had the, well, they call it the 15th God of Legacy event with almost 200 players, 130, 83 players. And they had a very interesting top eight. Their tournament was actually won by another Canadian Threshold deck, and uh, that deck looked pretty straightforward to me, I guess. Yeah, there's... I mean, they're committing pretty hard to Hooding Mandrills with three copies, uh, as well as three copies of Thoughtscore. So it's almost like a Turbo Mandrills deck, and like I mentioned, this is what you want to do if you don't really expect a lot of Thoughts to Plowshares, because... The alternative to running Hooting Mandrels usually is True Name Nemesis, which is a way to blank out the But Hooting Mandrels overall is just a so much better card. You get it down for one mana. It tramples over a lot of other things, including True Name Nemesis. So yeah, this, this this looks like a list that's very much pushed towards, hey, you guys are not going to show up with Sots of But the deck that I actually want to talk about that looked the most interesting to me is the A&T list in second place and that list plays three copies of Wishclaw Talisman. If you don't know what that is, that, that's the artifact that was recently printed, which is basically um, a demonic tutor, but uh, where is it? No, it went away. Okay, there it is. So it's so that card basically is a demonic tutor that's a little bit slower because it comes into play with three wish counters and then if you tap it for a colorless and remove a wish counter from it, you get to search your library for any card. And your opponent gets gains control of the card. So I guess the card you actually want to compare it to is more like... Uh, what, what's the tutor that nobody plays anymore that makes you Grim lose three life? Grim tutor, exactly. The card that costs like probably like a couple hundred dollars by now. Uh, the upside, of course, that this card has is... Which I actually like a lot that I initially didn't think about is... You can actually play this and it can never get discarded. Because you know how when you play against Storm, sometimes the correct way is to not hit their mana, but actually hit their their business spells. So they sit there and can do nothing until they find another Infernal Tutor. This one, you can actually play out aggressively, and you don't even need to use it right away, right? You can just sit there and eventually accumulate a lot of mana sources and go off that way, which makes it somewhat weird for your opponent, because now when you have Fishcloud Talisman, and your opponent plays, for example, lots of discard spells in Abrupt Decay, which a lot of people do. Do, do you keep in your Abrupt Decays for the Wishclaw Talisman? Probably not, right? Because it's such a dead card against Storm. Uh, on the other hand, if you, if you play a lot of discards, then you could see that blanked uh, if your opponent plays Wishclaw Talisman. Because if you take in... Taking a Dark Ritual doesn't feel as great as taking a business spell if your opponent's already sitting in a lot of mana. So I wonder if that's something that more people will adopt in the future. If you guys been playing a little, I think um, James, you've you've played some Storm in the past, right? Haven't you? 
Yeah, I like this list. I it looks like the talisman is essentially replacing the extra copies of Dark Petition and or Grim Tutor because you know it's pretty standard to have the four Inferno tutors. That goes without saying. But anything beyond that, it looks like this player has elected to use the talismans instead. So I, I see that as being a pretty good choice. And for the reasons you said as well, it's uh, you can you can somewhat protect it by just running it out. Eric, have you played against any of those Wishcloud Talisman decks in the past? I've seen people even combine it with uh, Guardian Beast, which, <laughs> which is kind of cool, which I guess gives it back to you. Yeah, there's. I've seen some Wishcloud Talisman combos uh, that are mostly built for fun, but um, I think, yeah, that this is getting pretty heavily adopted in Storm lists. I usually see two copies. Um, I, I like Oh, that. you do? Two copies? Really? I, I must be behind the metagame then. I've I thought been this was like brand two, new. Two copies, yeah, in some lists. There's different lists going around right now. Some people are playing Empty in the main. Some people are playing Chromox. Some, a lot of people are playing Wishclaw Talisman, uh, but not everybody. Uh, I'm, I played against Rodrigo, I think today, and I and he played um, the other one that you mentioned, the five mana one. Two, oh, Dark Petition. Yeah, Dark Petition. But I, I know that Cyrus was trying Wishclaw. I'm not sure what his final thoughts on it were, though. But I, I the, the upside of it is basically that, that yes, you get to um, you get to dump mana into it a turn ahead of time. So it costs extra. It's one more mana than your than your two mana rituals. But I mean your two mana tutors. But uh, you get to you get to invest your mana when you want to, rather than all at the same turn. But then the downside is it's like much worse against stuff like Null Rod, which is already quite good against you, and Abrupt Decays in Game 1s and things like that. So, Yeah, I was going to mention, right, if this card actually becomes even more widely adapted, adopted in Storm, then if your deck can afford it, you probably really want to run Nilrod in the sideboard. I know, for example, that Travis says he almost always runs just like a one of Nilrod in most of his creature-based sideboards, just because it's such an efficient card against Storm. And with Wishclaw Talisman, the mix, it gets even better. Something else that I saw in the list is this one has two Whale of Summer in the main deck, as well as another copy of Whale of Summer in the sideboard. Whale of Summer card recently banned in the Pioneer format, and it really, really makes its presence known in A&T. People talk about how, how it's good against the deck, which is true as well, but I think Overall, it feels like Storm Pilots are actually happy for the printing of the card, even though it's supposed to be good against them. <laughs> so I guess that that's some kind of double-edged sword there. I think we reached a point in the I think we reached a point in the format where you should not be surprised to see Vale Summer main deck versus combo decks anymore, right? We just talked about the Omni Show deck and Omnitel deck, and now we're talking about this deck. I mean, you can think of it as a dead card, but to be honest, like the, the cards that actually hurt you, you can counter with Veil Summer. So if you're a combo deck, it, it seems like a good time to be running this in the main or running three or four copies in the 75. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, right? If if Whale of Summer is ever dead, you're actually happy because you're up against a deck where... You probably already won, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, you're using it to yeah. protect what you have. And it has an elf in the artwork, so it must be a really good card. <laughs> I, I will say I heard somewhere on the internet this is uh hearsay i don't really know but that that this deck list is has a mistake in it and that there aren't supposed to be two veil summers in the main but that there is supposed to be one i think that's what i i heard there's six this is 61 cards and i think that that's not not supposed to be that way ah okay so actually Ooh. let me count the sideboard uh three five seven no, it's 15 nine, it's 10, 15 the sideboard. 15 but okay, 61 so maybe... main deck is eric's point 
Yeah, I think that yeah. I read that that somebody I, I read on on I think it was Twitter that um, the deck builder said there was a, a mistake on, on the website showing an extra card in the main deck, but I could be wrong about that. So then again, there are Japanese players lists, and you never know because that's true. I, <laughs> that's true. I, I always you know Japanese lists. I'm gonna you know it's always the case where you see a zero of become a one of, and you see a four of become a three of. So you never know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I like I like the idea of Veil of Summer for sure, and in, in Storm and any combo deck like you mentioned, it, it you can even play it out, and if they don't counter it, then you're like, okay, now I get to do whatever I want. <laughs> you know, James, you should actually write an article or a book about like cultural things about how to build legacy decks. I know that for a long time you used to say, for example, in Europe people play a lot of more play a lot more Storm. <laughs> in the US, everybody's playing Stoneblade. In Japan, everybody's like playing crazy lists and, and tweaking the numbers. I, I remember when they, they tried to make dead drop a thing and for a while, like all the Japanese lists had dead drop in, in the deck, which for most people who probably wouldn't know it, it's, I think it's like eight and a black or nine and a black and it's basically like double diabolic edict on the opponent. They get to sacrifice two creatures. So <laughs> yeah, that, that card didn't really make it all the way to us, but it's a very Japanese thing to, to have that card somewhere. I would write something like that, but I would I would I would be afraid of upsetting way too many people. So I'd have to just keep it on the podcast. <laughs> okay, just between you and me, you know, nobody's gonna listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also interesting that they have a snow-covered forest in the sideboard, which I, I can only really think must be to cast Raid of Summer, I guess. <laughs> Um, or I guess carpet of <laughs> but yeah, once you get carpet of flowers down, it's not really that big of a thing. I, I was just surprised to see snow-covered forest. This might be like this player's version of Grape Shot, just for showing off. I don't know. Like, just he, maybe he just wants to run fourteen sideboard cards. I hope that yeah, the that, deck that, that, that. doesn't have a mistake, and it really is sixty-one cards, and there's a forest in the sideboard. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, sweet list for sure. Uh, yeah, definitely. So yeah, this this is basically um, sums up everything that has happened in Legacy over the last couple of weeks worldwide. I actually really enjoyed that we get to to talk about tournaments from well, both Asia as well as the United States. And now we have a lot of big events in Europe coming up. We have the Cup Market Series in uh, Prague coming up. There's also going to be a lot of tournaments in uh, Italy leading up to GP Bologna. There's the Four Seasons event that Eric is going to attend, GP Bologna itself. So really looking forward to that. And... Yeah, it sucks that SCG dropped their support for Legacy, but what can you do about it, right? It's it's not something that we can really change here. And I don't know, like if you live on the West Coast, it probably like there's not too much changing for you, anyways. I saw a lot of people actually bringing up how how good their local Legacy community is and how they're having all these tournaments. And <laughs> I don't know, like to me, that, that that's just like. You can come. I don't even want to bash the people who complain, right? If if you feel like it sucks, then definitely could complain and, and make your voice known because that's like how, how you do it, and you just like show what you want to to the people providing it, and hopefully you get it. But other than that, just enjoy the format and and have a good time. Like I, I just went to my to my Tuesday night legacy that we have, and I think something like eight or ten people, no, no, more, more like eight people showed up, and we just like had a great time and. At the core, that's what it was always about to me, and I only then got into competitive magic. And I think you still get to play competitive magic, even if it's just like the odd event, like one or two or three times a year. But did you really go to more tournaments? I don't know about you guys. Like I usually play something like two or three really big legacy events in the year these days. I used to play more when I was grinding really hard, but I think that's not true for most players. So I still feel there's 
definitely going to be big tournaments, even if they're not SEG events. So, so I don't know how I, you feel about that. So my, my thoughts on this is that you can't really understate the cultural impact of SEG. So even though a lot of players have not actually gone to the SEGs, the fact they have the coverage, they dictate a lot of the market forces behind legacy cards and vintage cards. I think that cannot be understated. That is actually an important part of the format. Even if you don't physically go to a tournament, you're, you're actually watching it. Having said that, though, I do feel like, and I think you two are the best to, to talk to about this, I feel like Legacy can really be kept alive, really from a grassroots perspective, playing the weeklies in your local scene, but more importantly, just keeping it alive online. I think there's, it, it, it seems to me, at least right now, there's a very vibrant Magic Online community, and people are trying all kinds of innovations in Legacy on Magic Online. And so I think if people are willing to get into playing online more and getting better and leveling up and really following online results, I think that will keep the format going, at least in my opinion. Yeah, Eric, how do you feel about that being based on the West Coast? Does this influence you outside, of course, the the cultural effects that, the cultural influence that James mentioned, where there's going to be a lack of coverage, I guess? Well... Okay, uh, they they haven't really done much legacy coverage for a few years now. Um, I, I definitely was disappointed that they completely cut it, but I'm more interested to see if Wizards does any GPs this year. If they don't do any, then I'm I'm concerned about the the future of competitive or semi-competitive legacy. Magic Online, like James said, is a really great place to to actually play to play Legacy in their RPTQs and stuff, so that's pretty cool. But if they don't do any GPs and SCG cut it, then we're going to be... Uh, it's going to be sad times for Legacy. But uh, I'm not too worried until we until we see the rest of the year's schedule from from, from Wizards' GP schedule. Do we actually get to know who decides the format of a GP? Is it, is it Wizards or is it Channel Fireball? Oh, I, that I'm not sure, but... Yeah, that's that's what I'm more interested in. As long as there's still a couple, one or two, I would be happy with. But if there's zero and there's zero SCG, then people are going to lose lose interest in, in Legacy. I think a little bit, not not totally, but the price is high and there aren't yeah. big events and things like that. But I will also say, very shortly after, I think it was the next day after SCG announced that they weren't doing Legacy tournaments, they tweeted out that uh, due to the increased demand of from from EDH that they have increased their buy list price of dual lands. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I said, right? EDH killed the legacy star. Yeah, so, so people were like talking about how how the huge increase of well dual land prices over the last five or six years was actually heavily based on EDH. <laughs> pretty much, like like I can't even say casual players because the people are very dedicated to playing EDH who are playing it. So I wonder how much that actually was part of the impact because SEG like axing legacy and then instantly raising their buy list prices for the most central cards to legacy was was quite interesting yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know what to think of that i i personally wouldn't buy list my dual lands to SCG, but uh, that was true before they, they axed they axed the format <laughs> uh-huh. so before we conclude tonight's show i gotta say 
Fuck, Eric, dude, you were absolutely spot on when when we were talking about Pioneer on one of the previous casts. I remember when when, when you suggested that mono green devotion or like devotion decks in general would be a big thing in Pioneer, and Bob and I like had to had to actually <laughs> stop ourselves from laughing too much. I'm actually feeling embarrassed uh, about how much I had to laugh about that prediction because I felt like, whoa, dude, this is way out there. So how how do we like disagree with Eric without offending him? <laughs> and <laughs> turns out Monogreen Devotion actually put the most cards on the bad list on the on the first cards banned in, in Pioneer right now. So And it's still the for best those of you who don't know <laughs> Yeah, Leyland of Abundance, Oath of Nyssa, and now also Weight of Summer were banned, along with Felidar Guardian, which was part of the, the Sahidi combo. Um, Eric, did, is this the kind of deck you had on mind? Because I actually really thought you you meant some kind of like, can't even say mid-range deck, because the, the, the deck is somewhat mid-rangey. Is, is this the deck that you had on mind when you said that it's going to be really good? Um, I was thinking, well, I mean... There's mono Just green yes. devotion, and there's mono. <laughs> I was thinking mono green, mono red, and probably mono black are going to be. I just, I, I think that there are multiple devotion decks, and I think people are playing other ones as well. This one was the best one, um, but I just my point was devotion's boring. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, playing against it, I certainly had the same feeling. Like, I kind of like what they get to do with all that mana that they're producing really quickly, but it certainly gets old after a couple of games. Um, I was playing Green Black Elves, which also feels a little bit uh, one-trick pony almost, because most of the games that you end up winning are through a Shaman of the Pack, or even just, um, what's it called, collect a company for two copies of Shaman of the Pack. Ooh, take 18, GG. Um, it's a fun deck, and I actually found quite a bit of success with it, if I may say, considering how nobody apparently seems to be playing the deck. I got a couple of, like, three twos and four ones. No five fours, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, the, the big deck in the format right now seems to be some version of Hardened Scales, uh, like black-green Hardened Scales with the Snake, um, which has been doing really well lately. But I think, uh, Eric, you just mentioned that you still feel that Mono Green Devotion might still be the best deck. Well, I don't know. Now that they, I, I, I don't, I don't follow it that carefully the the format. But I know that they banned Leyline of Abundance and Oath of Nyssa, and people were still winning with Mono Green Devotion. Um, I think the Leyline was a big part of the deck, but uh, I think the reason that this one of all the I, I, of all the Devotion decks got had the most success is because it could use Nykthos better than most monocolor decks since green has better yeah uh high-end cards and double green spells and everything yeah that that push Nyctos even more that's a good point uh and james i think you you mentioned that you are super interested in the format itself but you're still holding out right you you, you haven't committed to any deck yet yeah, I just feel like right now, I mean, it's obviously a lot of fun for everybody to brew and try different things. That's a lot of the fun of magic. For me, I'd rather just sit back and wait a little bit, wait for the dust to settle, wait for a few more bands to come in before figuring out what I want to do with the format. I'm definitely interested, but I'm sort of still in this sit and wait kind of mindset. Which is actually interesting um, because that also has been my experience from the other side. There's a lot of people out there who really want to get into Pioneer, but they are waiting. They want to see what 
we as streamers or content producers are showing them. Because when I posted that I had been playing Green Black Elves, I got so many messages of people, hey, oh my god, is there a VOD? Can I get your sideboard guide? There's so much interest. And I saw it from other content creators too, um, who, who said that them putting out pioneer content has given them better number than anything they have done over the last couple of months. So there's a ton of interest in Pioneer, and I, I like, I honestly, genuinely hope that this format is going to succeed and going to be amazing, and hopefully not going to turn into another version of Modern. Like I liked Modern at certain points, but I didn't really like it too much for most of its existence, just because it felt like. I don't know, that's like a philosophical thing. Maybe we should do an entire different episode on that. I just feel like my position is, if you want an eternal, or rather a non-rotating format to be good and remain good, you need some kind of police deck. And I know that not everybody agrees with me on this one. I don't know about you guys here exactly, but I just feel like there needs to be something that says, that, that puts some kind of line out there like this is how greedy you can get this is how far you can push it if you go beyond that then in legacy you will be dazed spell pierced and wastelanded so even though i'm not a big fan of the card delver of secret itself i'm a fan of what the deck does for the format in like uh, <laughs> okay okay uh, trying not to contradict myself with stuff I've said before, I think Delva these days has set the line a little bit too low. I think you should be able to get away with a little bit more in Legacy, but generally I like that Delva puts that line out there. And I think that for most of the existence of Modern, we didn't really have that. So that's why people got to to go like super big and do the Tron thing, which would be almost unthinkable in a format with Wasteland, I guess. And I hope that Wizards is eventually going to shape the format in a way that there's gonna be that that line that i'm not or for most of the existence of modern haven't really seen in modern and yeah that that's just like my take on on pioneer i want the format to succeed but i don't want the format to be a format where a card like oath of nissa needs to be banned because like look at the card it's ridiculous that that this card needs to be banned in in this format i don't know how how you guys feel about that i i feel that Modern used to be in that place that you're talking about before they banned uh, Splinter Twin. <laughs> <laughs> I almost wanted to get at that, but I, I felt like, okay, this is another kind of form that I didn't want to open. But yes, yes, this is exactly <laughs> how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know enough about, about Pioneer to have an opinion there because I'm in the same boat as James. It's like, I'm yeah, I'm interested in playing it, but I'm kind of just waiting because uh, I'm not going to invest in a format or in decks when the format's completely you know, open to, to weekly bands and, and people are, you know, brewing and trying to figure it out. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Um, until some things get figured out as well as some, some stability in the format. Yeah. Okay. So looking forward to, to what we will be able to accomplish in Pioneer then. I, I hope there's going to be some kind of Elves Maverick-esque deck that, that I get to play because that's just like the place that I like the most. So, um, Guys, is there anything else you want to talk about? I think we we, we are going to wrap up the show here. Uh, going to call it a day, or at least a night for me. <laughs> it's it's raking quite late. No, that's it for me. No, I'm good. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Great. So let's go with James first. James, where can people get hold of you? What What's the best way to get into contact with you? Probably on Twitter. So it's James underscore HSU. You can also follow the Humans and Magic account. That's Humans and Magic, one word on Twitter. Or even better yet, you can follow us at Cardboard Live, one word. We're all on Twitter. Awesome. 
And Eric, as usual, where can people find you? Twitch.tv slash EWLandon or on Twitter at EWLandon1. And I'm It's Julian23 on Twitter and twitch.tv slash It's Julian for the streams of both my personal streams as well as the Legacy Premier stream, Legacy Premier League streams, which are going to return this Wednesday for actually the winner bracket semifinals. I'm going to play against Charis and we're going to have, oh my God, this is going to be the biggest clash of the Titans thus far. We have Autumn Pochette against Javier Dominguez. Javier has looked unstoppable, but Autumn has also performed really well, so... If you have time and you can make it at Wednesday, 6 p.m. East, definitely tune into Twitch TV slash Julian to these, see those giants clash into each other, as well as Travis and me, <laughs> to see who's going to make it to the winner bracket finals. A couple shoutouts here. I definitely want to give shoutouts to our Patreons, of course. You guys really make our show work. You, you allow me to stay up until like, well, 15 or quarter past two in the morning and, and produce the show. So thank you so much for that, everyone, seriously. Especially, of course, to our Eternal Witness supporters, Matt and James, as well as to our top-tier Grizzlebrand supporters, Baju, Scott, Kursh, and Jeremy. I sent out a lot of stickers earlier, actually in October already, and I think a lot of you have already received them. If you would like to receive stickers, head to patreon.com slash everydayeternal, where you can become a Patreon, support the show, And also get like that speed back. And actually, I started out sending T-shirts as well. So I hope our first T-shirts are gonna arrive soon. And if you're listening to this and you you have an everyday eternal T-shirt and you want to, you don't even need to show yourself. I'd, I'd love to see it on Twitter in in some kind of post. So <laughs> that that as that. And now the shout out I want to do is to my friend Pierre and fellow tribal enthusiasts, <laughs> Pierre from Mage Market. Pierre has recently launched a 2.0 version of the app, and what they're doing is. Really, really cool because you know how, how that, there's this problem in Magic right now. You can either buy from the really big stores and make sure that you get what you ordered, but you're paying a little bit extra for that. Or you buy from what I want to call like a crowdsource platform but and pay a little bit less, but run into the problem of sometimes, you know, like a friend of mine, he ordered an original Antiquities Mishra's Factory and so many people keep sending the Renaissance Mishra's Factory. I think he literally ordered it three times and three times it was the wrong version. So he eventually gave up on it. So what Mage Market is doing, they have the middleman service. They receive all the cards. They make sure that it's not only the correct well, version in the first place, but also the correct language and condition. So if you really want that near mint Misha's factory, for example, which I guess is already quite hard to get, and a lot of people have a tendency to, uh, is this really excellent? Maybe it's near mint. Yeah, you, you know that kind of shit. I guess to some degree, we, we've all been guilty of that at some point, but that's not something that you can actually pull on Mage Market because they verify the condition. So you as the buyer, you have nothing to worry about, right? You, you just order what you want and you, you're guaranteed to get that. So definitely check them out. They launched the app both in Europe and North America. Uh, there's some features that will soon be implemented in North America as well. Europe already has all of them. And if you use them, you can support me by using the code Julian. So if you, if you, for example, don't want to become a Patreon, um, which I can totally see, like I, I also can't Patreon all the people that I want. Uh, if, so yeah, if you, if you use the code, check out code Julian, you can basically have both of us. You can get the 5% discount and yeah, using the code usually helps content creators. So that would be a cool thing. Check it out. I just ordered, <laughs> I just ordered four foil copies of, um, what's it called? The Triceratops, that, that really good dinosaur. Eric, you must know you played against it yesterday. I have no Shifting idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Shifting Ceratops. It is quickly becoming a Maverick staple, according to my friend who plays What? <laughs> it's I actually saw a copy of it in the in the Maverick list that top-aided the, uh, the all-of event. That's my friend, yes. 
Oh, that's him? Okay, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I just five, five out of it as well, and Shifting Ceratops was like a huge contributor to that. So maybe, maybe you know, next episode we're going to talk a little bit about Dino Stompy. There's actually a little tiny part of me who actually wants to play Dino Stompy at GP Bologna. But it's probably going to be hard to get the cards for that together. Actually, yeah, now that I have the Shifting Ceratops, it's actually not, not going to be that hard at this point. So yeah, so... We're, we're going to talk about GP Bologna and the episode right before the GP. We're going to have another episode where we talk about um, a couple of decks that we feel could be very, very positioned. And with that, I want to say good morning, good evening, good night to everyone. James and Eric, thanks for being on tonight. All right. This is where you're supposed um, to say goodbye to. Oh, this is, this is <laughs> goodbye. goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.